It was the summer of 2002. Jan, we were talking about that summer just a few minutes ago, interestingly enough. I was living in the basement of Bill and Jan Chandler, and I uh, was working with the youth here at Faith Methodist Church, and it was a uh, it was the summer right before my senior year of college, and I was thinking out ahead into the future that God would have for me, and I was trying to to discern what uh, what would uh, would would come next and there were a lot of eventful things that happened that summer and one of the most eventful things that happened that summer was I got to ride my first roller coaster now you may not think that's all that eventful but if you know how much I love roller coasters now you know that that was a life-changing summer we uh it was the first time I had ever been to Six Flags over Georgia. I'd, I had gone to Six Flags over, over Texas back when I was a little kid. Uh, wasn't tall enough to ride hardly anything probably. But this was my first shot at riding real, the real deal roller coasters. And when we walked into the park, we, we hung a right. And there it was right before us, the Georgia Cyclone. And Bill said... That'll be a good one. Let's hop on it. And so we stand in line for a little bit, and I'm perfectly normal, content. I think I was pretty excited. I don't think I was all that nervous. But as we're making our first uh, uh, approach to the first drop, I said, is it supposed to be shaking this much? And Bill said, yeah, it's, it's kind of how it happens on wooden roller coasters. On second thought, this might not be the, the, the best first choice for you. And so, of course, we go into the first drop. I was very excited, very terrified. But I've, I've ridden roller coasters hundreds, probably hundreds of times since. I, I ride them a lot. I really enjoy roller coasters. But there was something else going on in my life at that, at that point in time, back in the summer of 2002. The very next summer, 2003, I was going to be marrying Lindsay. We were engaged to be married. We were putting together all the plans of that big day. June 14th, I still remember it, guys. I, I, I don't think I've ever forgotten. She forgot our first anniversary, but I've always remembered our anniversaries. But I was preparing for marriage. There was a lot of anticipation in my life. And there was something else that also happened to be going on, which was pretty big as well. I was preparing to go into the ministry. I had been working with youth for throughout the summers of, of my years in college, and that was the last summer that I was afforded that opportunity to have just two or three months to, to, to live off campus and to, to work with youth and then return back to the comforts of a classroom. But this was that last summer, and so I'm thinking, okay, what really lies in store? When I graduate, what am I going to be doing? I know God is calling me to ministry. I know it's some pastoral form of ministry, but I'm not sure what that means. Does it mean that I'm going to relocate? Does it mean I'm going to live in another state? What does this mean? Now, one of those situations, riding a roller coaster, is not really all that important in the scheme of things. But two of those things were very, very important. Marriage and ministry. And it's important 
when you're going into something as, as, as large and as life-changing and as dramatic and dynamic as that to make sure that what you know about it is not a misrepresentation. Misrepresenting the facts, misrepresenting the truth can lead to a world of troubles. Had marriage or ministry been misrepresented and therefore misunderstood or misconstrued, there could have been quite a number of troubles. There are a number of folks who look at marriage as being a horrible thing. Why would you want to do that? Why would you want to fight with somebody for the rest of your life? There are nightmare stories about what life in ministry is like. In fact, it's a common assumption that the the children of, of ministers won't go into the ministry because of the life of ministry. But typically, that's a misrepresentation of what is really a joyful thing. These are important aspects of life that are often misconstrued and therefore can cause a lot of damage. Unfortunately, we often make the mistake we often make the mistake of turning the resurrection of Jesus into something that it is not. We misrepresent it. We misconstrue it. We misunderstand it. Paul was essentially addressing that very thing in what we call the 15th chapter of his first New Testament letter to the church at Corinth. The resurrection, you see, is not about denying death. It is about defeating death. I trust that I haven't said that too often so as to to get that concept too old. But again, the resurrection is not about denying death. It is about defeating death. It is not so much about life after death, but as N.T. Wright puts it, it is about life after life after death. Resurrection, as understood in the first century, is about bodily resuscitation and glorification. It is not about everlasting disembodied existence. It is about the body having died and having remained dead for some time, being raised back up from death by God's Spirit. In the end, Everyone dies. Lindsay often uses that as a a joke of a spoiler when she's read a book or seen a movie and she finds out that somebody else hasn't read the book or seen the movie. She always tries to spoil it. Oh, in the end, everybody dies. Now, she's normally joking when she says that. Sometimes she's not, I don't guess, but she's normally joking. However, it is true in the end. Everybody dies. Denying the reality of death is neither biblical nor a good thing. Actually, to deny the reality of death, to deny its loss, to deny its pain, to deny its reality is lunacy. 
when the New Testament offers us what the New Testament offers us is what Israel was looking forward to happening at the end of time. The defeat of death through the resurrection. An astonishing thing for any first century Jew would be before the end of time, seeing one who was resurrected. Regardless of who that would be, anyone, even a Messiah. But astonishingly, that is what the New Testament writers insist upon as having happened to Jesus. You see, when Jesus died, his followers' hope in the possibility of him being Israel's true Messiah, their hope was effectively dashed to the ground. After all, just like everyone else, he died. Just like all of Israel's leaders up to that point, he died. Just like all of the would-be messiahs up to that point, he died. Nothing new to see here, I guess. He seemed so different though. He had so much promise. But he died. And then three days later, out of nowhere, he stands again before these these disheartened followers. He stands literally before them. He stands physically bodily, resurrected in glorified human flesh. Now we've read the story of what happened on Easter Sunday a number of times together these last few weeks. After all, it's a good time of year to be doing that. But this this passage here in John 20 takes us back to that first evening of Jesus' resurrection, that first Easter Sunday. And it tells us the story of Thomas not being present with the other disciples. So he's away. We don't know where. We don't know why. But he's away. And Jesus suddenly appears in the room with the other ten disciples. You remember Judas went out and hung himself. And so you're left with eleven. Thomas is not there, so now we have ten. So these ten disciples and perhaps some others are are gathered together and they're talking about the events of the day. They're talking about what has happened. They're talking about what Mary's testimony is, that she has seen an angel and then she's seen the Lord himself. They're talking about what does this mean? What, What are we supposed to understand of this? We ourselves haven't seen him. You remember John and Peter ran to the tomb, but they didn't see him. They simply saw an empty tomb. But all of a sudden, here Jesus is standing in the midst of them. The doors are locked, and they're wondering, how's he gotten in here? And the scriptures tell us that he showed them his wounds, and they were glad. They realized this is really him. This is not some ghost. This is really him. The disciples 
try to share with Thomas what can't be believed in his mind without seeing. We've really seen him, Thomas. He's raised from the dead. And Thomas says, that's an impossibility. I, I cannot, I will not believe that until I see his wounds myself, until my own hands touch those wounds. And so, John, the gospel writer, he fast forwards us a bit to a week later. And all of the disciples are back assembled. And Thomas this time happens to be with them. And suddenly Jesus shows up in the room. And it's interesting what Jesus says. Jesus is always able to speak right at, into the heart of our need. He tells Thomas, he invites him to do exactly what Thomas said it would take for him to believe. Look at my wounds. Look at my hands. Here, touch them. Touch my side. Is that what it'll take, Thomas? Notice the text doesn't tell us that Thomas did then touch his wounds. But Thomas cries out, My Lord and my God. This one that they thought was Israel's true Messiah. Who seemed to be dead beyond any hope. Was indeed dead. But was raised up. Completely blowing the minds of his followers. Here before the end of time, right smack in the middle of time, one man was raised from the dead, was resurrected. And his whole life, his whole ministry, all that he had done, all of Israel's hopes in him being their Messiah were vindicated. But let's be sure, this was a physical, bodily resurrection. This is the hope of Easter and the promise of the gospel of Christ that Paul so adamantly and ardently defended in his New Testament epistles. From this reality of, of resurrection, Paul picks up that Jewish hope of the resurrection and reassures his readers and hearers that yes, indeed, we too, even all of humanity with us will one day be resurrected ourselves. This might sound a little risky to say, but hear me out. The good news of Jesus and His resurrection is not just about us being with God in heaven after we die. Rather, the good news of Jesus and His resurrection is that, yes, of course, when we die, we go to be with God in heaven. For To be absent from the body, as Paul affirmed, is to be present with the Lord. 
But there is coming a day, even beyond that, when God will by His Spirit also raise up our dead bodies. He will glorify them and He will re-knit us to them forever. Unfortunately, we do ourselves, the church as a whole, and ultimately even the world a disservice when we mix up and twist around and remove from context and then carelessly misrepresent the New Testament's discussion about the resurrection, the return of Christ, heaven and the afterlife, and even without knowing it, the new heavens and new earth that are promised throughout Scripture. I'm almost certain that every funeral I've ever attended seems to have done this very thing. Misrepresent what resurrection is all about. Most of the songs that we sing about death, heaven, and the resurrection seem to take part in this misrepresentation. Unfortunately, even the hymns. Is the confusion generally sincere? Yes, of course it is. But it's still confusing and therefore brings and breeds confusion. So it has the possibility of doing more harm than good. Just as God is not the father of sin and death, so also is he not the father of falsehood or confusion. People can sincerely be wrong. In fact, people are often sincerely wrong. But our sincerity does not deny the fact of being wrong. When we're wrong, we're wrong. It's a novel concept, but it is that simple. As people who follow the one who declared that he himself is the way, the truth, and the life, we ought to be utterly concerned about in this life being truthful and pointing toward the way things will turn out in the end. Even if this means affirming what we don't, that we don't actually know all of the details. So essentially, what am I saying? What am I getting at? Simply this. We must be honest and candid about the resurrection. What it is and what it is not. We must be clear and careful in our declaration of and proclamation of the gospel. Eternity depends upon it. The winsomeness of the gospel depends upon the clarity and beauty of it. To try to deny its clarity and beauty in order to make it perhaps more clear or perhaps more beautiful from our own perspective is to rob it of its power. Which in the end will no doubt do the world and the church a disservice. We must come to grips as the church living in modern times with the fact that to quite an extent our affirmation of the miraculous that which goes beyond the natural world will indeed make us seem foolish to the world. So be it. We cannot, must not, and dare not sacrifice the shocking beauty of the gospel for the sake of something less or something that seems tame or something that seems a bit more respectable. To offer another gospel, any other gospel, as the Apostle Paul 
boldly declared is to be accursed from the very start. Well, so what? Why does this even mean, what does this even mean, Pastor? Why does this even matter? How does this have any bearing on our lives today? I want to offer to you three ways that the dramatic reality of what the resurrection is, how it begins to shape our lives and ministry as the people of God. And the first way that the resurrection of Jesus, His real bodily, physical resurrection, shapes our thinking and shapes our living and shapes our ministering is this. It shapes our proclamation of the gospel. What I've been talking about up to this point, that the gospel is what it is, And we must affirm truth for truth's sake. The resurrection in the New Testament was not just some spiritualized concept of a better life. And we must be clear and direct in what the gospel is. We do no one a favor by sacrificing the gospel for the sake of its proclamation. As God's people, we cannot escape the reality of what the gospel declares and the capstone of that gospel. And what Paul said every bit of our faith hinges upon is that Christ actually got up out of the tomb and was resurrected. And so his resurrection shapes our lives as the worshiping people of God. For it shapes our proclamation of the gospel. But the resurrection of Jesus also shapes our service to and for others. As God's people, as people who believe in the resurrection, as people who affirm that Christ was indeed raised from the dead, we embrace goodness for goodness' sake. Just as Paul said at the end of 2 Corinthians chapter 15, in that final verse that David read for us this morning, Paul said that it is because of the physical resurrection of Jesus, he says, therefore... My beloved brethren, be steadfast, be immovable, be always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. It is because Jesus was raised from the dead that our service for the sake of others, that our service to others and into the lives of others, that our ministry, whether it be compassionate ministry or ministries of mercy, whatever it is that we are doing as laboring in the Lord, it is, it is given new life and new meaning because Jesus has been raised from the dead. It's as though we're invited to take part in a great campaign of new creation. 
We hear the voice of the one who says, Behold, I make all things new. And so we roll up our sleeves and say, We want to get to work and involved in that. The New Testament calls it laying up for ourselves treasures where they cannot see decay. And so when we work as the people of God in God's world, our lives are declaring that Christ has been raised from the dead and we look forward not to a disembodied existence, but we look forward to God making all of this new. Wiping away every tear. Doing away with all hurts. And the resurrection of Jesus, His literal, physical, bodily, scriptural resurrection gives life also and shapes our lives before the world. The scriptures speak of the beauty of holiness. And as God's people, we embrace truth for truth's sake. We embrace goodness for goodness's sake. And we also embrace beauty for beauty's sake. And so we are called as the people of God to live lives that are conquering, that are victorious that are made beautiful by the holiness of God upon us. In this body and in this life, the resurrection of Jesus declares to God's people the dignity of this human body. His resurrection is God's shout of affirmation for His creation. That this matters that matter matters that physicality has meaning that our bodies and the way we live in our bodies has meaning next week we're going to be looking at how the resurrection of Jesus gives us kind of a, a grid for how we ought to live before others and how we ought to live as God's people. This morning, I want to give you just a tease of that. The fact is, because Jesus lives, He will resurrect His people. And we live now as His people looking back to His resurrection and looking forward to the resurrection that is still to come at the end of days. And we live proclaiming and serving and living our lives for the sake of others because He lives. Because He was really Resurrected. Because he was raised, we too will be raised. And so even now,
right here, right now, in the week that looks us dead in the face ahead, we are given the opportunity to live as people of hope, to live as people who look forward to a new creation, who look forward to seeing God's grace working in the lives of others, and who look forward to seeing good and truth and beauty being brought to bear in their lives. Let us think clearly. Let us serve joyfully. And let us live victoriously. Let's pray.